Well, good morning. My name's Matthew, one of the elders here. If you're uh, joining us for one of the first times, we're glad that you're fellowshipping with us today. We continue our series this morning uh, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. Another way to describe it or that we've said is that what are the marks of a supernaturally changed heart? Because the fruit of the Spirit is actually the character of Jesus Christ being formed and wrought in our hearts. It's changing us from the inside out to be like Jesus. It's the fruit of the Spirit. At conversion, I think the fruit is a good um, illustration in itself for us. Because when you plant a tree, the tree grows up, the tree gets mature, and fruit begins to form and mature and ripen. But it takes time. It's a season. It's a, it's a period of time. So at conversion, Jesus saves us. God puts his spirit within us. He gives us a new heart that can now obey him and trust him and love him. And as our walk with Jesus persists and continues, fruit begins to manifest itself in our lives. So that's what this series is all about. This series has been all about the fruit of the spirit being manifest in our lives. And this morning, we come to faithfulness. We come to talk about faithfulness. And sort of the way that we've been doing this series is we've taken one of the words in in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, and we've gone somewhere else in the scriptures that help draw this point out more clearer. And this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, 32 to 42. And this is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus Christ is praying to the Father. He's asking his disciples to pray on the eve of his crucifixion. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read to us the text, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. Father, this is an awesome and awful place in the scriptures where the maker of the universe is in the garden and just beginning to experience the full wrath of God. Lord, we do pray that we would come to this text with 
humility, sober judgment. And Lord, we do pray that your spirit would be with us, God. Lord, we are all yearning and longing to see the risen Christ. Would you move in our hearts, Lord? Would our hearts be more enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ as a result of sitting under your preached word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point is our unfaithfulness. So what does this, uh, this word mean here? We have this word faithful in Galatians 5.22. It's the Greek word that in many other contexts means belief. It's a really common word in the Greek Bible. Uh, it's the word Paul uses when he's talking to the Ephesians elders, Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just the word faith. And it's normally translated, and we normally apply it to mean belief. But when it's in the context of a virtue list, like it is here, it's not so much talking about believing something, it's talking about a moral quality. It's talking about a moral quality. And it just simply means to be faithful. It means to be loyal and dependable. It means that you're someone who can be counted on to fulfill responsibilities. It's dependable. But another way to look at this trait would be to call it integrity or fidelity. Fidelity isn't a word that we use so much anymore. But fidelity means the degree to which something matches something else. The degree to which something matches something else. We usually use the word fidelity in talking about music recordings. So you could say MP3s have more fidelity than cassette tapes because they represent the actual sound better. So what would that mean in our lives? To be a person of fidelity means that the inside matches the outside. To be a person of fidelity means the inside matches the outside. It means you, what you say is what you do. The inside matches the outside. But it also means that the private matches the public. The private matches the public. There is a wholeness to who you are. The way that you are alone is the way that you are around other people. There isn't an incongruity between who you are at home and who you are at the office. There's no difference between who you are at work or who you are at church. You know, as a pastor, I have this like special like, like card in my life where I meet someone... And then the conversation goes to a place where they find out I'm a pastor, and they kind of just shape up real fast. They look at me differently. They might have been dropping F-bombs 30 seconds ago, and now they're apologizing for it. It's because they don't have any integrity. But I was reflecting in my, this week, in this text, in my own life. And I was reflecting how unfaithful I've been in so many different areas in my life. It's a bit daunting to do, to really sit down and reflect, because we're just not as faithful as we want to be. Thinking of the commitments I've made to my wife, the commitments I've made to my kids that I haven't kept. I remember a time several years ago when I was in conflict with a member, with a family member. And I just remember being really frustrated and angry at this person. 
But while this conflict was sort of going on in the background of our lives, this family member went through a tragic episode in their own life. They actually witnessed their neighbor try to take his own life. And this family member literally ran over to this man's house and saved his life. A tragic episode for anyone to witness, surely. But then he called me, and he called me several times that week, simply because he needed someone to talk to. Thank you. And I didn't answer the phone. And I never called him back because I was angry. This conflict that was going on in our relationship prevented me from being the kind of person that could you know, be a faithful friend to him. An incident's a deep regret of mine, not being faithful, loyal, or dependable. As I was reflecting, I also remembered, as many of you know, that this church went through a difficult season about a year ago. And a lot of that trial was a result of a lack of integrity in me because the inside didn't match the outside. What I thought didn't always match what I did. And I've shared this before in front of you all, but I remember when I first got married, Vanessa and I would get into these arguments because I would make all these promises to people and start just double and triple booking our schedule. I'd meet someone and they'd say, hey, do you want to come over for dinner on Friday? And say, sure. And then I'd see someone else and they'd say, hey, do you want to go hang out on Friday afternoon? I'd say, sure. Because I really desired to just be this people pleaser. But then we would get back home, we'd be like, so which one of these things are we actually going to do? Because you just committed us to do two or three different things. And there was this incongruity in me. There was this lack of integrity. And that's the same thing that happened in the relationship with our brother that, um, that was a pastor at this church. There was a lack of integrity in the way that I dealt with him. What I said to him and what I actually thought didn't always line up. So in our text this morning, we see two examples of faithfulness. We see one that's pretty poor in the disciples, and we see one that is faithful to the very end in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 33 with me. It says, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. See, Jesus is at one of the most difficult seasons, the points of his entire life, and he takes his inner circle with him. He takes his closest friends with him, and he just says, Brothers, will you pray with me? Will you just pray with me? I mean, I'm, I'm sorrowful even to death. Just please just remain and pray. And three times he comes back, and he finds them asleep. Three different times. But I think at first glance... We can look at the disciples here and, and not really sympathize. But I think if we actually turn to Luke's account, Luke twenty two forty five, Luke adds a word for us that really helps get a glimpse of what's going on with the disciples. Luke says, and when he arose from prayer, Jesus, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He found them sleeping for sorrow. These guys were so sorrowful that it was exhausting them. 
They were so distraught at what was happening that it was utterly exhausting him. All their hopes and dreams were based on the fact that Jesus was the Savior and the rightful King of Israel. All of their hopes and dreams seemed to be utterly shattering before them. They were so sorrowful that it was causing them to fall asleep. Have you ever experienced that? That kind of sorrow, that kind of just grief in your life that it's just utterly exhausting. It seems akin to almost crying oneself to sleep. Just totally exhausted with sorrow. But what Jesus does here, what Jesus does here, seeing his words as an encouragement instead of a rebuke. He says, remain in prayer that you might not enter into temptation. Because Jesus Christ himself was experiencing the same thing that his disciples were, but to an infinitely greater degree. And he was able to have compassion for them. He was able to commiserate with them. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He was like us in every respect. He knows what it's like, my friends, to be sorrowful to the point of utter exhaustion. He knows what it's like. Moving on, this text this morning opens with Jesus beginning to like quite literally fall apart. Verse 33 says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus's agony and anguish in that garden. Not the laments in the Psalms, not the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice Isaac, not David's grief at the death of Absalom, In fact, Luke's account tells us that Jesus' sweat was falling to the ground like drops of blood. His whole life, his whole life had been marked with an awareness of his impending future. He knew this his entire life. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now there was a peculiar intensity that he was experiencing. If the distant prospect of his sufferings was a perpetual Gethsemane to him, the immediate imminence of his suffering in the actual Gethsemane brought what John Calvin called the beginnings of the pains of hell itself. B.B. Warfield, he wrote an article many years ago and actually became a book. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in talking about Mark 14, B.B. Warfield says that Mark exhausts the resources of language to convey to us some conception of our Lord's agony. He exhausts the resources of language to convey to us some conception of our Lord's agony. Another commentator in the book of Mark, Bill Lane, he says that Jesus is experiencing a shuddering horror. The suffering which overwhelmed him is forcefully stated, appalled and profoundly troubled. Or the NIV says, deeply distressed and troubled. Or King James says, sore, amazed, and very heavy. And in the midst of this, he asks his disciples to pray. I think one question we should ask as I was meditating 
on this text this week is why is Jesus so assailed by the prospect of his death? We know testimonies of Christians who throughout history have died in very valiant and and honorable ways. You know the story of Polycarp. Polycarp, as he's about to be burned at the stake, he says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Whoa. You know the story of um, Hugh Latimer and um, Nicholas Ridley. These were reformers in the 16th century, and they were arrested. They were arrested uh, when Queen Mary became queen um, in England and wanted to restore the church back to the Roman Catholic Church, and so she started arresting all these Protestant reformers, and she arrested uh, Latimer and Ridley, and they were literally burned at the stake in Oxford. (laughs) And this is what Latimer says to Ridley as Latimer is, as Ridley is actually burning. He says, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. I mean, just poise. Just poise in the face of, this, uh, of being burned at the stake. Poise in the face of this kind of martyrdom. And yet Jesus, in the garden, is just utterly appalled at what he's about to experience. Why is Jesus so shaken? Verse 36 says, remove this cup from me. And therein lies the answer. This cup. You see, the cup... The cup in the Old Testament is the cup of God's wrath against sin. Listen to a few places. Ezekiel 23, 32 calls it the cup of terror. Yes, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink from the same cup of terror as your sister, a cup that is large and deep. Ezekiel goes on and says, You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. It's called a cup of terror, a cup of horror, a cup of desolation. Habakkuk calls it a cup of shame. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. And probably most famously is Isaiah 51, where it's called the cup of wrath. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of wrath, who have drunk to the dredges of the bowl the cup of staggering. Jesus Christ was facing the cup of the judgment of God, the cup that brings terror and horror and desolation and shame and fury. And who is giving Jesus this cup? This cup of fury, this cup of loneliness, this cup of darkness, this cup of despair, it's his Father that's giving it to him. The dread that Jesus experiences is not because of fear of a dark destiny or shrinking back from the prospect of physical suffering or death even. Rather, it's the impending reality that one who is wholly 
only lived for the will of the Father will soon be cut off. This is one who his entire life, from eternity past, dwelled in perfect love and harmony with the Father. The triune God eternally existed as an infinite dance of love. The Father doting on the Son, the Son glorifying the Father in the unity of the Spirit. For all eternity. So Jesus wasn't just staggering at the prospect of physical pain. No. Jesus was shuddering at the thought of soon being cut off from the Father. They had loved each other infinitely for all eternity. They have a relationship that we all want and long for. Jesus calls him Abba. He says, Abba Father. Which the best way to translate Abba is probably just Daddy. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of closeness. It's a term of love. He's saying, Daddy, remove this cup from me. Jesus Christ is about to take the full wrath and judgment of God. He is about to experience cosmic justice. You know, Jesus He's coming to be with the Father before his betrayal here in the garden. He's about to be betrayed by Judas. And Jesus goes to the place that he knows will be a place of consolation. He goes to be with his Father. He's gone away to pray throughout the Gospels. Jesus goes away to be with the Father. And now, in the hour of his greatest need, in the hour of the impending judgment of God, he goes to the Father again one last time to pray. And what he finds in the garden is hell opened before him, and he staggers. What he saw made his holy soul shrink and utterly be appalled. He's beginning to taste what happens on that great judgment day when God will say to some, depart from me. When God will say to some, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You know what, my friends? We will never know what it's like for the holy God of the universe to treat us that way because of what he did to Jesus on our behalf. The smile of the Father was turned away from the Son so that it will never be turned away from you and me. We will never experience that kind of judgment because of Jesus Christ in our place and on our behalf. We have no measure whereby we can understand what even happened to Jesus in that garden. As the hymn says, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear but we believe it was for us. So what does this mean for us? That Jesus Christ remains utterly faithful to the very end. His disciples are there. He asks them to pray. They fall asleep. I would have fallen asleep. You would have fallen asleep. But Jesus Christ remains faithful to the very bitter end. Absolute integrity, absolute wholeness within himself. 
So what does that mean for us? That we just have a good example now? Is that what we need to hear this morning? Is that what you need to hear this morning? Now go be like Jesus, who was faithful to the Father. Now you can do it too. Well, partially. You know the story of Jacob, right? That Jacob, he wrestled with God. He wrestled with God, remained faithful, and in the end, got a blessing, right? Remained faithful to the end and got a blessing. And here's Jesus, though. The true and better Jacob. Jesus is in deep anguish, and he too remains faithful to the end, but he doesn't get a blessing. He gets a curse. The real faithful man who's faithful to the end gets a curse so that you and I will always get a blessing. This isn't an example to us of just, look, pray like Jesus did. Pray pray incessantly like Jesus did. Instead, what you need to see is that when Jesus Christ is in the hour of greatest need, he goes to the Father and prays and has hell open before him instead of heaven. So that you... Every time you go to God in prayer, every single time you go to God in prayer, you will have heaven opened before you. Access to the Father himself. Jesus Christ received the ultimate unanswered prayer. Father, take this cup. The answer was no. The answer was silence. And no prayer of yours and no prayer of mine will ever go unanswered ever again because Jesus Christ only got silence. What else does it mean? It means that Jesus took the cup of wrath so that you and I will always get the cup of blessing. The text right before us is the text in the upper room. They're in the upper room in Bethany where Jesus says, take this cup to his disciples. And he says, drink. The cup he gives is the cup of the smile of God, the cup of the promise of God, the cup of the hope of God, the security of God. He serves that to his disciples. And then when they're done eating, they get up, they take a walk, they go out of Bethany, they walk down the valley of of the Kidron Valley, And they walk into the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden, Jesus shudders at the horror of a cup of wrath. The cup of exclusion, the cup of darkness, the cup of loneliness, the cup of loss. Though we only deserve the cup of wrath, and only Jesus truly deserves the cup of blessing, Jesus takes our cup and he gives us his. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It means that you and I will always receive the cup of blessing. Third thing it means, let's talk about integrity for a moment. when we begin to truly see the depths of what Jesus Christ did for us, it will make us people of integrity, people of faithfulness, people of fidelity. Look at disciples. 
In the days and hours leading up to the garden, they all tell Jesus they won't desert him, and they'll stand by his side. Peter tells them just a couple of verses back in verse 29. He says, even though they all will fall away, I will not, he says in 29. But here in the garden, Peter falls asleep three times, and in the morning, he'll have denied Jesus three times. In verse 40, they're faced with their own hypocrisy. It says, and again, he came to them and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. We've all been there. We're faced with our own lack of integrity, faced with our own lack of fidelity, and you just don't know what to say. So how does this help us? Because picture the scene here again. The disciples are asleep. The betrayers, they're not there yet. The soldiers aren't there yet. The crowds aren't there yet. They're still in bed. And Jesus is in the dark, and he's alone. If there was ever a chance to escape, this was it. This was sort of the last-ditch effort if he was going to do it. Even more so, you could say, the Father even allowed him to taste a bit of what was coming, and he shudders at it. But he stays he stays. He remains. Sleeping disciples, he stays. That should help us in two ways. First, how dare we fall asleep on people? How dare we give people our word and then don't keep it? Look, we do it all the time. We give Jesus our word, we give God our word, and then go the other way. And yet he still offers us unending love and unending forgiveness to us. We should make this kind of mistake once and never do it again. It would be like showing up late to the president's house for dinner. If dinner was at six and you said you'd be there at six, you would be there at six. And if for some reason you didn't show up, you showed up late, it would never, ever, ever happen again. But we do it all the time. We're talking about the God of the universe who made everything, who holds everything in his hand, and he has unending love for us. But again, this is not just an example to us. It's a power that should move our hearts and our emotions. It's a power that says Jesus Christ remained. He remained faithful for your sake. But second thing it should do is how dare we hold a grudge for those that have fallen asleep on us. How dare we hold a grudge for those who have fallen asleep on us? And this is where the gospel demands a sort of ethic and ethos that is just contrary to that of the world. Jesus was let down by all his friends, and yet he doesn't desert them. In the hour of his greatest need, they fail him. But what does he do? Does he walk away? Does he say, I'm out of here, forget these guys, forget these jokers? No. He stays. He says, never mind the praying thing, get up, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. He's about to go give his life for them and be cut off for them, and they couldn't keep their word to him, and he doesn't hold it against him. So I say again, how dare we hold a grudge 
against people that fall asleep on us. See, Jesus can't just be an example to us. It has to be a power to us. Just an example of forgiveness won't do it. We need to see and experience the kind of forgiveness that Jesus gives to us. And then we will learn to become this kind of people. It can't just be an example to us. It has to be real power from him. Do you see it? Do you see him remaining and staying and being faithful to us, to you, to the very bitter end, though it cost him not just his life, it cost him being cut off from the Father that he dwelled with for all eternity? Do you see that kind of love that comes flowing down from the cross to you and into your life and into your heart? Does it make you want to be a more faithful person? Do you see that he will always remain absolutely faithful to you to the very end? Does it make you want to be a person of prayer knowing that when you pray, you will always have heaven opened before you. You will always have the blessing of the Father before you when you come to him in prayer. You will never experience being cast out in prayer. You will never experience coming to the Father and experiencing the foretaste of wrath and judgment. That will never happen to you. Every time you go to him in prayer, you will come to a loving father who's absolutely for you and, 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 and concerned for everything that you have to share with him. Do you see that? Do you see a father who will remain faithful to you to the very end? He will remain with you. Though we falter, Though we slip, though we fall, Jesus Christ and God the Father in the unity of the Spirit will always absolutely be for you because Jesus Christ experienced the punishment that you and I rightly deserve. Look, we read Hebrews 5, 7 today. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This is the God-man. He had to be a man so that he could fulfill the law for us, so that he could pray the way that we needed to pray. He prayed with loud tears and cries. He's a brother just like us. He knows what it is to be us, and he perfectly, always, absolutely did the will of the Father, knew the will of the Father, prayed to the Father, and did so with perfection. And at the end of his life, he should have experienced blessing, but he experienced a curse for our sake. So that we can be treated and seen as the true righteous man is seen in heaven. So that when we come to God in prayer, God sees us through the eyes of Jesus Christ, absolutely faithful to the very end. So now as we come to this table this morning, we have a tangible reality in our hands. We can taste and touch the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the very end. And we can take this cup now, which is the cup of the new covenant, which is a cup of blessing for us. It's a cup of blessing for us, my friends. It's a reminder of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ will always be for us and not against us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that we would see the depths of your faithfulness to us. 
and that you would bring that about in our own hearts, that the fruit of the Spirit would be manifest in our lives and we would become a faithful people, Lord. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.